Hello, I am Angelina Pratt, the host of Empathetic Witness. goodness. Hi, how are you? I'm really good. Nice to see you. Nice to hear you. Yes, it's nice to see you too. I'm so excited to talk to you. I've been really thinking about your project and I went to your website. I read, you know, some of the projects that are ongoing, but what I was really impressed with, well, actually, before we start, why don't you introduce yourself and who who you represent? Uh, Sure. My name is uh, Ian, Ian Pringle, and I represent uh, Farm Radio International, which is, I like to say now, a um, Canadian-African organization that is focused on communication rights, or you might say the the right to information of all people. And that's our, our, I would describe as our primary mission. Yes. And so, Ian, tell us what is the genesis of that journey? Like, how did it begin? And how did you personally feel this was a purpose that you could go behind? So um, that's a very interesting question. And I've never really reflected on the the two streams in the sense of Farm Radio International as an organization and then you know, my own journey. But but first, Farm Radio International, it was established or, or it, it, it got its traction in um, very late 1970s, early 1980s by folks that uh, who are broadcasters, specifically who are working in the farm radio context. So, you know, radio programming for rural audiences that was geared towards addressing the needs and circumstances of rural farming families, not just the agricultural needs, but but other needs as well. Canada uh, had a, at the CBC had some pioneering, uh, you know, people working in that space, and and some of them, including a, a guy named George Atkins, and and people around him saw and identified a need to share. Um, uh, materials with broadcasters from around the world who were in similar situations. And so they made a commitment to try to assist and build the capacity of other broadcasters who were doing programming for rural audiences like he was and, and like his his colleagues were here in Canada. And the, the organization has quite an interesting history. There was a time when it really was a sort of a clearinghouse, you might say, of content-based resources, and then training resources for radio stations. So the commitment was always to help build the capacity of existing radio stations. Rather than starting new stations or equipping stations, it was around working with existing stations and, and providing resources that would help build the capacity of those radio stations, ultimately, uh, to improve the quality of their programming. And by quality, for me, quality is always about meeting the real needs of the users of the programming. Um, 
And, uh, you know, Farm Radio went on like that for 20, maybe even 25 years. And then the context of, of international development was changing a little bit. And and I guess, you know, organizations, maybe sometimes they get a little bit tired. Uh, and so Farm Radio had reached a point, you might say, of being a bit tired and I think was really at risk of 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 it, you know, closing. And then it had a rebirth. Huh. And part of the rebirth was the new name, Farm Radio International. Part of the rebirth was some organizational changes, which were very enabling and, and empowering for the organization. And part of it was a focus change to only work in sub-Saharan Africa. And probably the most significant change was that in addition to continuing that work of, of providing resources to a, a network of existing radio broadcasters, the organization also took on executing projects and using those projects as a means to support broadcasters, but with a whole new type and, and sort of level of programming. Um, and, and that was probably around 2005 to 2008, that sort of rebirth. And Farm Radio really took off. There were some really brilliant innovations and an exceptional team of people uh, driving that work. And, and the organization has kind of taken off and gone from strength to strength in this new uh, new incarnation. So I guess that's the Farm Radio side. Uh, for myself, um, I am... Um, went and attended McGill University uh, starting in uh, 1986. And uh, when I was there, I, I was uh, really fascinated. I was studying communication, and I was really fascinated um, by a new radio station that had just started at McGill University called uh, Radio McGill, CKUT. Uh, they had just secured a license for broadcasting, and I met some of the people, and I was really uh, intrigued and, and just fell in love with this whole new young, young, young organization and the people that were there. And so I, I got involved. Um, but I guess what really made the difference for me and and kind of set the the, the sort of track for my career was that it was also a time of a lot of... Um, um, anti-gay, um, um, what do you say, you know, sort of hatred or, or discrimination, but but some of it quite awful and violent. And, and so as a gay man, the station became a place where I felt very safe, but more importantly, where I could and other people from my community, but from all kinds of communities could come and uh, share their own views and be in control of their own communication. Mm -hmm. And so it really marked for me the importance of communication for individuals' community development and, and, and that idea of the right to communicate and the right to access for information. And I never really looked back. I, I've been involved with radio and kind of community-oriented radio ever since. <laughs> yeah. Well, the university is often a really good place to disrupt those types of prejudices you know um, yes. and because I, I mean at the university level you also have new music innovative music like there's it's a creative porthole as it were you know it's a space for you welcome differences right? exactly and, and exactly. you probably even celebrate the differences right yes yes i mean you just uh, those were some of our slogans and <laughs> 
It was, you're right. It was a very interesting combination, really, the, the two main drivers of that station, but so much of of that sort of alternative or community radio was music. And I remember once a, a guy saying to me that we were interviewing for a music director position at a, at a different station, asking him about, you know, politics and that he was comfortable with all the sort of identity politics uh, of the station. And he said, well, you know, music and alternative music is also inherently political. So I agree with you 100%. And it was that real combination of, you know, as you said, of diversity and difference and, and things that were not in the mainstream and the opportunity for those communities to, to come and use the radio as a way to make their community stronger. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. That's perfect. Um, so, you know, when I was going on the website looking at Radio International, Farm Radio International, what really struck me, number one, was how broad and huge the reach was in Africa. Like, I think if I'm wrong, correct me, but I, it's like 9 million people, listeners. Uh, at least. At least, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, at least. I mean, scale is, is you know, of the farm radio right now in that kind of network uh, stream of work, we, we say we have uh, 1,350 1,350 affiliated radio stations. And we don't know because we're not quite there yet in terms of being able to, um, you know, estimate or, or talk about the coverage of those stations. But the coverage of those stations is is probably 200, 300, 400, maybe even a half a billion people. Um, because, you know, radio is... Uh, you know, it, it's a medium of scale. Mm -hmm. And in many countries, the broadcasting partners that we have would have an audience of potentially five or six million people, some of them. Um, so the scale is enormous. And it's one of the most important elements of, of, of what organizations like Farm Radio offer as a solution is that if it really is about meeting the information and communication rights of people, these are fundamental human rights. So you can't pick and choose who has access to those rights. Everyone has access to those right. rights. And our, our mission and our job needs to be to realize those rights for people. So you have to do it at scale. Yeah. And so, you know, radio is the potentially, I, I think, the only way to do that in, in certain contexts. But Sub-Saharan Africa is one of them. Yeah, as you're talking about, you know, the reach, um, just... To remind you, I, I we haven't spoken in so long, but just to remind you, I come from a small community in northern Alberta, and CBC, you know, was great at including Indigenous peoples in their broadcasting. And back when I was young, they would have, you know, a Dene show, so they would have a, a you know, show that I understood and felt part of. And I noticed too on your on the website, you know, some of the programs and the the programs that were uploaded are in indigenous languages. And that is so powerful because when you're communicating in your own language, like you could really feel how empowered those participants were in speaking about 
you know, some of the challenges they faced in farming, you know, the drought and other ways to to do sustainable farming. But when they're speaking in their language, they really are empowered. And they're also more likely to, if they're the ones leading the innovation, like a, a lot of them are leading the innovation in how they do the, the sustainable farming. And you can hear the pride in their voice. You can hear how they're making a difference in their communities. And radio is doing that, you know? And I don't know, in comparison to social media now in the 21st century, how do you think those communities... I know, as I was reading, the, the radio, actually, people are more ex have ex access to, whereas iPhones, I know more and more people in third world countries do have it, but it's not as accessible as having a transistor radio to, to listen to these um, programs. So let's, let me hear your thoughts on social media in conjunction with the radio programming. Sure. Um, you know, first, you're absolutely right about the, the language. You know, if it's not in the local languages, I would say don't bother, almost don't bother doing it. It's a different thing if if you're not doing it in people's own languages. They have to be, you know, they've got to be in control of their own communications. And the right to communication is not just about listening, it's about speaking. And, and part of that is making it as 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 local as possible. Um, you know, the contexts are very different. You know, Farm Radio International. I, I like to say that we use radio in a sub-Saharan African context because it's the most appropriate medium. Wow. You know, yeah. it's the most accessible medium for people. And it's a it's a rich and a deep medium because it's based in 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 speech, which all cultures really, their their histories are in oral traditions and in in speaking and listening. So it's very, very appropriate. Um and you know, there's so much focus on mobile phones and digital technologies, which is is very important because they offer us new tools and, and incredibly powerful tools. Um, and we've seen the the transformational effect of of social media on you know European, North American, and and, and uh, you know other societies, China and India. I'm sure as well are, are being transformed by these new very powerful media. But in certain contexts. Um, the, 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 people can't use them, you know, like they just they're they're really not the same, partly because of the accessibility in terms of the fact that not everybody has a mobile phone. I mean, the numbers are around mobile phone penetration in rural areas of sub-Saharan Africa, they're still relatively small. Um, I don't have the figures off the top of my head, but let me suggest that maybe in a rural area, the more rural and more remote you get, the lower those you know, those amount of the, the percentages of access will be. So really, you know, people talk about the the last mile you know, in a sort of a telecommunication sense of, well, you have to extend the access and the infrastructure all the way to the end, to the last mile. And I would say, if you're taking a rights-based approach, that's not the last mile. That's the first mile. So you need to be thinking first and foremost about the people who are at the very 
end, or I would like to say the beginning of that road. Mm -hmm. They are the people who we need to be thinking about. They do not have mobile phones. They don't have access to mobile phones because they're probably too expensive. Um, They're too expensive to, to buy. They're too expensive to operate. Now, that's not everybody. And we can't discount the fact that mobile phone penetration is increasing all the time, including in the most remote areas of sub-Saharan Africa. But the accessibility elements of it go beyond the access to the device itself or, or to or to the you know the airtime to be able to use them because there's not very much content in local languages. Yeah. Right. So yeah. even if people have access to the device, it's not a very meaningful or a, a rich degree degree of access because what are they going to access um you know there's no there's no materials in their languages or 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 very few likely now you can't really generalize because there are languages that are spoken by tens of millions of people and content is increasing in those languages but it's it's very important for people to to put it into context and to to picture yourself if you can in a very very remote rural area where there's no electricity in in large swaths i mean 50 60 even more percentages of, of some countries have no access to the electricity grid so really you have to it has to be basic and if we're trying to meet people's rights we we really need to think about that now all that said mobile phone penetration is increasing and so farm radio's approach has been to not to think, oh, forget radio, let's do mobile phones, but to build on the foundations that radio have and strengthen them by introducing mobile phones into the mix. So we will often talk about interactive radio and designing radio programs in which we will advertise a phone number and encourage listeners to use their mobile or if there's a collective mobile within a listening group or or maybe someone's son or daughter or or hmm. or somebody else in the family who has a phone to use the phone to be able to interact with the program to give their opinion to vote on certain questions that are being asked uh, or to access other types of information and that and i think also advertising the other digital tools that are increasingly becoming available that i think is very powerful and it's a very appropriate way to to proceed by not forgetting about the foundations, but building on top of those foundations with new tools. And social media is also, uh, I think, very, very important. And, you know, uh, social networking, even more than the social media applications, social networking applications that give people just the network to use, those are very powerful. And, And a game changer for us at Farm Radio has been WhatsApp. Mm. Um, because it's incredibly popular. It's very easy to use. And you can very quickly set up a group of people who are just sharing content with each other. And it's it's very simple and it's low, low bandwidth, low, um, you know, low expense, rather than thinking that people are on on Instagram or on Facebook. They are, many people are, although Facebook is is a little bit for older folks now, um, but but they are on those. But WhatsApp, I think, is fascinating because WhatsApp allows people to share content again in their own languages because they're determining the content, and they can set up the groups. 
So I think that social networking in particular will become even more powerful, perhaps even more so than the than the social media. Um, and there's a lot of issues with social media. Social media, social networking too, no doubt, is a major source of disinformation and misinformation. Um, right. And so, again, we try to tether the use of those back to established media because media have training in in information and they're trusted sources of reliable you know verified information by professional journalists or skilled experienced journalists so um we always try to tether those things back to the radio both in terms of the quality of the of the content and the information uh, but also it's the richest most accessible element and we shouldn't be trying to you know, isolate media channels from each other. We should be looking them at as a a, a toolbox, or even more so, a an intersection of, of different technologies based on what the users want and and use and what's appropriate for them. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, and it's like the integration of these different modalities that actually will be a successful way of you know re- reaching people, right? You know, like I, I think I it's. Agree more. And it's it's really important to have that reach. Um, um, why don't we talk? Can you talk about maybe one or two projects that you are you want to give some notice of? Sure. Um, I'll mention um, maybe three, and I'll try not to to go into too much detail. But um, one. One project that we have just finished uh, recently, um, uh, the name says a lot. It's called, uh, was called Scaling Her Voice on Air. And it was a five-year project in four different countries. And the objective was very much to scale quality programming across quite a large number of, of radio stations. And we approached the stations in in kind of two groups. One, a slightly smaller group where I think there were about uh, probably 20 or 25 stations. And we worked with them more intensively. And then a larger group that we worked with less intensively, trying to share the results from the first group, essentially with the second group. Very large numbers of people. I mean, uh, the coverage of the stations you know, it was definitely five or six, you know, million, maybe nine or 10 million people in terms of people who would have had access to this improved quality programming. And the focus of the programming was was really on food security um, and um, and nutrition security. So trying to ensure that people are able in their communities to be able to grow enough food and have access to enough food in markets uh, and nutritious food. But the really brilliant thing about this uh, project was that the, the entry point into doing that work was all through women. Yes. Um, and so in addition to, to sort of doing programming that would be, you know, of interest to women and making sure that women were on the radio. So, you know, there's a whole series of, of things that you have to do because, of course, the whole concept of access to information, you know, the first context might be that it's in Burkina Faso and Mali and Senegal and Ghana. But the more important context is that there are always people who are, you know, have less access. Mm-hmm. And women 
in sub-Saharan Africa almost always have much less access. So even if you put on great programming, you really need to address more fundamental issues and ensure that they are able to access the radio programming, to be able to use it, that it has their voices on the radio so that they're not listening to men. They're listening to women talking about these issues, sharing their success stories and their, you know, their their their, their stories in general. Um, and more than that, the programs also have to address the gender um, barriers that women face to be able to act on the great programming that's happening. So that, that really was the brilliant thing about this project was that it was really focused on issues that were critical for women, addressing women as the audience, but also, uh, um, you know, addressing head on the challenges that women face with power relations, you know, in terms of not being able to make decisions or or just being overburdened with work. And so, you know, the programs talked about sharing decision-making in the households to make sure that those decisions were shared and trying to really empower women. Um, and the program therefore addressed, you know, those gender issues and tried to transform them. Um, it was a very, very successful program and was transformational also for farm radios and organization in terms of, of really ensuring that it was clear that, um, uh, you know, our, our focus is on women and, and that our programming needs to tackle gender relations in addition to making women part of the audience. Um, the other, you know, I mentioned two other projects. Um, uh, one, because the, the basis of it is to go beyond a project. So, you know, I tend to say that Farm Radio has three streams of work. One is the the focus on radio stations and and, and the network, um, which is beautiful, building the capacity of radio stations. Nobody wants to pay for that. Nobody's really willing to invest and fund it. Where Farm Radio has been very successful in terms of its own organization and sort of its lines of business, if you will, has been implementing projects because there's an awful lot of 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 development funders and agencies out there who need the kind of services that we offer. And so we've been able to market communication for development very successfully. But the problem with projects is not that they start. When they start, they're great. And when they're going, they're fantastic. They're brilliant. They These projects have really delivered, you know, life-changing programming to people who are are at the margins of 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 life you know in many cases but the problem with projects is that they end right so you you put this fantastic programming life-changing programming on the air and then when the project is finished oh sorry the funding's over you know thank you very much you're welcome but but we can't continue so the 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 new focus of our organization is on trying to work with communication systems at the national or a sub-national level in order to ensure that the basic program uh, platforms, the basic program spaces are there permanently. They're there all the time. They will never go away because that's what people need. Of course, it's like, you know, if the CBC was only on for a month or two every year, you know, when we, you know, when they have enough money for it, you know, it would be so unfair to produce fantastic programming for people and then take it away and say, well, I'm sorry, but we haven't figured out how to keep it on the air for you all the time. So that's what we're trying to figure out. And we call that work uh, the Green Leaf 
platforms. So the idea that these are magazine programs that are, are will be permanently available and that the projects that we do secure an investment from other sectors goes towards sustaining those programs on an ongoing basis. And we've been doing that work in Ghana and our, our biggest uh, sort of um, um, exercise in this programming right now is in Uganda with the support of the IKEA Foundation. Um, so it, it's very, very significant and it really represents for us the future. And people have been trying for decades to 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 figure out how do you make these programs sustainable because people recognize how powerful they are but these powerful programs are only going to be powerful if they're really sustainable and and done that way um and the last one i would mention is a a new format that uh, farm radio has elaborated that uh, we call on air dialogues and it's interesting because it really builds on the um, the incredible success of integrating mobile phones into programming. And so what it does is that it's usually a fairly short series of programs, maybe three episodes or six episodes, and they explore certain topics or, or subject matter. And the resource people go on the radio and, and often policymakers and others. So each program provides a context, but the real focus is on asking the audience questions. So a program, one episode would typically ask, let's say, five questions, um, four closed-ended questions, so a multiple choice answer or a yes or no answer, and, and then one open-ended question. And the idea is that the programs uh, advertise a phone number for people to call and when they call the number, the questions are repeated and they give their answers to those questions. And because you're using radio to get the questions out there, you can reach, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And so thousands of people respond to these questions. And because it's done using mobile phones and it's digital, you can process the data on the closed-ended questions incredibly easily and quickly and then present those back to the audience and continue to have a dialogue with them. So you're asking questions, then you're sharing the answers, and you're asking policymakers or or decision makers to reflect on what they're hearing and its relevance towards policies. And um, with the uh, the open ended questions, it's a very very rich source of data. So you can really, with time and and resources, and you can analyze that, and that provides a really rich insight into what farmers, you know, women, men, youth in rural areas think about issues like climate change and food security and food systems. And the success of this in the last few years has been to do this work, but then to present it all in a really nice, concise, graphic publication. And those have been presented at the, the conference of parties that was held on climate change in Egypt last year and at mm -hmm. the food system, the UN Food System Summit in 2021. And we'll do the same thing again at the food system stock taking moment in July of this year to really try to ensure that the voices of, of, of food producers, men and women and, and youth farmers are actually being heard in these forums that are making decisions about them and for them, but often not with them. Mm. Uh, 
So this is, uh, you know, it's very powerful in terms of listening to people and really trying to include people in important discussions. Yeah. What, you know, as you're talking and as I read some of the projects online, I related to indigenous isolated communities, you know, and how, and I, I formed a non-for-profit foundation um, last year during the pandemic and we're producing courses to address certain issues in communities. But the key element for that is to build capacity in the community. So when, like you say, when the radio station stops transmitting stuff, the community can continue the work, you know, so you have to build the capacity, teach people in the community how to address their their needs and concerns themselves. And that's how you have the continuing of the programs. It's it's through capacity building in the community. So I'm I'm thinking as you're talking, and what I have read is is that you know you go to the community and you ask the community, what are your challenges right now? How do you see it being solved? And it's the community that brings that to the surface. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, and it and it's powerful, you know, because. It's all about being included, right? If you're yes. included and you have you have ownership of, you know, the problem and the solution, then you can continually transform your communities and keep the empowerment going. And uh, and that's exciting. It's really yeah. exciting. Yeah, yeah. And and you're right. I mean, it's all about. You know, we would say fundamentally, it, it has to be about participatory communication in the sense that, you know, all education is is communication. You know, that that's what it is. Yeah. Um, but if it's not participatory, then it, it's often not relevant to people uh, for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's not the right topics or the right, you know, as you said, it, you're not addressing the right problems and you're not presenting the right solutions. And really, the only people who should be making those decisions are the people whose problems they are and who who need those solutions. Now, other people can come along and help, you know, as experts and researchers. They may have ideas. They may have discovered things through research and analysis that will be exceptionally helpful. But the the, the people themselves the ones who are facing the problems and need the solutions they have to be in the driver's seat and and you know the vehicle that they're they're driving has to be uh, appropriate for their own language their own culture their own geography you know everything and and too often that's been the problem is that people recognize the power of communication but they don't make it participatory and the the most important part of participation is making the decisions. Everything else is, you know, is kind of an add-on, but the foundation has to be people deciding what those programs are about and when they're on. And, you know, that all those decisions need to be made with the, with those people, but that's hard. Life is hard. Yes. Life is hard. And yes. as somebody in Uganda recently, when I was there, said to me um, at the beginning of the meeting, speaking to his team that are working on this Greenleaf magazine program to make this agricultural extension program sustainable, he said, 
we face a lot of challenges. But, you know, if we didn't have challenges, we wouldn't have any work. And, and I thought, you know what, it sounded sort of silly and he was kind of joking. But at the same time, it's true that life is really hard and there are a lot of really important challenges that need to be addressed right now, yesterday, in fact. So that's what our work is, is to address those challenges and not to turn away from them. Yeah. And that's the difficult part. I mean, thinking about innovative ideas and and looking at how you can use a different perspective on a solution or on a challenge. Um, I mean, because I know you also are wear a different hat out of the box, you know, and I always like that. And I often talk to people. Um, I was talking to one of the curriculum writers the other day, and I said, you know, as I'm thinking about this course we're, we're, we're drafting, how can we present it so that it's out of the box? And of course, then I thought of Ian. <laughs> when I say, you know, you should copyright that word. <laughs> so, yeah, to how do you approach it out of the box? And it's, you know, often we have, well, speaking for myself, I have a difficult time thinking of innovative ideas, something that hasn't been done before, you know, and I, of course, the pandemic actually helped in that regard by allowing people in various sectors to pivot and change, you know, at one point, we would not even conceive of meeting on Zoom, we would think that it had to be in person to be effective. And in the last three years, we've been having a lot of meetings on Zoom, and it's just as effective. So there's there's a way to pivot. But, you know, when I'm looking at delivering curriculum to an, you know, Indigenous community, I thought, well, how can we make it different? And the curriculum writer said, well, you know, you got to do an environmental scan, find out what the needs of the community, get them involved and have them design it. What do they need? How do they need it? And what? ask them what you can do to help them achieve what they need. So it, it's, it kind of goes to what you were saying. And it really, but I still, in my mind, I, I'm still thinking, but that's still not out of the box. <laughs> like we're kind of, the box is open but it's not out of the box yet. Like I wanted to really create something fundamentally really different. But I think we, like you say, we learn through information and we learn through doing. And of course the course is designed so that it gives the student activities to do in their own communities. Like they need to take ownership of what it is they do and how they present that in the community. So I guess it is kind of out of the box. I'm not sure. I don't, I'd like to get your opinion on it. <laughs> well, I think, you know, uh, I guess, you know, everything is, is uh, needs to be contextualized and we always need to think of things in context. So, you know, the innovation or that, or, you know, being outside of the box or doing something differently and trying new things, most importantly, the, the, the question of new, you know, new for whom or who or whom. Um, and if it's for those students, well, 
just involving them in the curriculum and, and having them participate and then do the activities in their own location, I mean, that may be a major innovation. Um, you know, like a, that, that, that may be completely different. So what is new and innovative or outside of the box in one place may not be in another place. But in some places, you know, very simple changes and doing things differently may be really innovative and really outside the box. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and I think, you know, we see a lot of it in, in our work where, you know, even in, 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 in the places you'd least expect it, you know, like senior decision-making, you know, offices, that people are, are, are almost obsessed by digital technologies. Mm. So, you know, we'll go places that people are like, no, 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 radio is old fashioned and nobody really listens to radio anymore. It's all about mobile phones and, and, you know, social media or digital technologies. And, and that's true in some contexts, but depending on where you're working, like if you're working in a rural area of sub-Saharan Africa, or I imagine, you know, um, you know, in some, First Nations communities in Canada, it may not all be about, you know, those things. And actually, something like radio might be more appropriate, but doing the radio in a different way, that might be a major innovation. So sometimes, you know, people, they see the world from their own lens, and they are not seeing the world from the lens of the people for whom these programs are actually critical, life-changing, maybe even life-saving and so it's really important to examine all those questions from their context and from their perspective, which is not easy to do. And they may not, you know, then you have, then you have to deal with the whole idea of relationship building and stuff, because they may not even want to talk to you, depending on who you are. I'm sure they'd want to talk to you, but, you know, um, so I think sometimes people become a little bit, uh, especially decision makers, become obsessed with with innovation for the sake of innovation. And they sometimes neglect the fact that, well, something really old could be innovative or something very simple could be innovative because in the context that you're talking about, it could be quite radical. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, it's, but it's interesting to talk about those things and and get that it could be happening already already and you just ha- haven't recognized it yet as innovative because you've opened yes. the book to to add another dimension you know getting getting um participation from people that you're designing certain things for yeah. um because i mean i as an indigenous person you know we get stuck with Oh, everything is colonization, right? And uh, and almost to the to the detriment of not wanting to look at it because it's colonized and it's it's from a colonized perspective, and you can't really parse out where colonization leaves and indigenous aspirations begin, because mm-hmm. everything that we are. I mean, especially in Canada, is designed by the all the policies are designed by the colonizers, right? Yeah. Well, the whole context is so you yeah. know colonial and and so oppressive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's really we need to look at what's already there and acknowledging what's there, and not 
have this knee-jerk reaction that, oh, I'm going to stay away from that because that's a colonized idea. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And, you know, on the flip side, you know, people are, 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 you know, I think obsessed is not, you know, I think it might be the right word that people think that innovation is all about technological innovation yeah. because, you know, it's what we've the last 20 years. It's like the advancements in technologies and, and particularly information communication technologies. I mean, they're moving so fast that, you know, we can't possibly keep up with them I and mean, nobody can keep up with them. They're moving so quickly. but. But it's not everything. Innovation is not necessarily just about sort of bells and whistles and, and the, the technologies. Innovation can be things as simple as as making sure that programming is in people's own languages and that they're involved in setting the, you know, the, the goals and the objectives of, of, of those things. That could be the biggest innovation, you know, that there is. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's so true. It's so true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's um, as we get close, we've got about 15 minutes. And sure. um, is there another project you want to talk about? I think you talked about two. Yeah, I mean, I guess I talked about two projects and then one sort of, you know, uh, a new format, you know, right. for, for the work that we're doing. Um, you know, I, I guess what I would, you know, be inclined to reflect on more is that is those fundamental issues around, you know, access to information. Um, and, you know, it's um, it's uh, Article 19 of the Universal Charter of, of, uh, of Human Rights is freedom of expression. Um, and that's fine, like the freedom to be able to communicate and express ourselves. And most people often associate that with media and the right of people to be able to, to use media. Um, but whatever we do, and, and I think we've tried hard at Farm Radio within the last five years or so to make sure that the work we're doing is what they call, you know, a rights-based approach. And so that we're really thinking about the fact that the right to information, to access information in a timely fashion, and to be able to communicate back, uh, to be able to ask for information and to be able to express yourself that these are fundamental human rights, and they are so um, unequally accessed in the world where, you know, for me, here I am holding up my mobile phone, and through this small little device, yes, exactly, we've all got one, you know, here, um, but you can access probably most of the world's collective knowledge over thousands of years, the sort of Western, you know, kind of knowledge, but but many other types of knowledge, just through the mobile phone. Like this tiny little device provides me with an unparalleled access to information and the ability to communicate so quickly with all sorts of things. But most people in the world don't have this. And it's not just about the phone. You know, like in a rural area of Mali or a rural area of Tanzania or Ethiopia or, or other countries around the world, India, you know, um, in rural areas in that are not Mumbai or Hyderabad or Bangalore, people would be lucky to have an hour or two of radio programming, even if they have access to radio that is in their own languages about their own issues and addressing their own fundamental problems, which are things like, 
your livelihoods. Like, how are you going to farm to earn money or farm to be able to put, you know, food on the table for your family? Uh, and how are you going to prevent, um, you know, disease and 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 ill health and malnutrition from affecting you and your family and your community? Um, so the inequality of that access to information, we sometimes now talk about it as information poverty or communication injustice. So I think, it, to me, one of the most interesting parts of our work at Farm Radio in the last five years or so has been really thinking about it and trying to make sure that we approach all of our work in that context, that it is around fighting to ensure that everyone has access to information that they can then use because they're not only fundamental rights, but they're also, you know, cross-cutting rights in the sense that you can use the access to information and communication to address all your other rights as an individual or as a part of a family or part of a community as a collective, because, you know, Information and communication are essential to your right to housing and your right to health and your right to equality and your right to so many other things. Um, and so somehow, and I know this is, I talk about sub-Saharan Africa because that's the context of farm radio's work. And, you know, my background is is also, I spent a lot of time in Nepal with working with community radio stations and in India with local and, uh, you know, media groups. So, I know that it's not just sub-Saharan Africa, and I think in Canada, the, the inequality of access to information and communication is also enormous. I mean, it may not be in the, the numbers to the same degree, but I think that First Nations communities across the country are fundamentally in a situation of information poverty and often communication injustice. And you know, the residential school system, one of the linchpins of that was around removing culture and removing language, which is the fundamentals of information and communication. Um, and so if there's anything, not an individual project, but trying to permeate all of the work of Farm Radio International, it is around trying to address that, that fundamental problem and the fundamental right of people to have access to information and communication and, and trying within the context that we work in to figure out how to be able to, to do that, because that's what allows people to be in control of their own lives and allows them to be in control of their own, you know, development. Um, and you're correct. And I find, you know, doing my little part, like th this is my second season with the podcast. And I had to kind I I kind of transitioned from addictions and trauma, which was the main topic of the first year of the podcast. The second year, I'm looking at empowering conversations so that people have a hope. I think, you know, because of the pandemic, we have been pretty isolated, right? I mean, we we were locked up for almost three years and we weren't out there, you know, be, being sociable. That the, it kind of hit us hard psychologically, emotionally. And so people have, are even today afraid of going out, you know, and 
by people, I mean me, <laughs> you know, because I'm still afraid that we're not done yet with the virus. But the podcast allows me to go into people's ears, <laughs> I guess, and and have a conversation with someone that could inspire, could create and light up an area of creativity in their mind so that they can address issues in their own environment, in their own community. And, and which is why that I'm picking specific people to have conversations with that others can identify with that they can say, hey, I can do that too, you know? So Farm Radio is doing all this stuff in Africa and reaching millions of people and changing their lives. Like I read some of the projects you have and they are life changing. And I think largely because it's um, directed from individual, like we, we had spoke about earlier that, individual people are partaking in the solutions and being creative about where they want their future to go and how they're they're looking at it. So my podcast now is to look at you know, having the listener doesn't matter where it comes from. You know, Africa, I had I did a podcast in I talked to a film director in Australia about storytelling and he was was saying you know like you talking to me right now about storytelling in Australia you're part of the fabric of our storytelling now you're in it you know it's and it's so it's really really exciting to be a voice that will inspire people and as we get closer I think we got about six minutes I like to keep, you know, on time. Um, I would ask you this question. Where do you see your legacy? Most people I ask the question about legacy, they just say, I never thought of my legacy. I'm not that old, you know. But legacy could mean something different. It's just to inspire others. It doesn't mean creating a book or a documentary, but it's, how do you see showing up in in the world, in society, impacting others? Because Ian showed up for them. Um, well, I hope that it would be in, um, you know, in those type of spaces. You know, if there's anything that, not me so much directly anymore, because I found that, you know, throughout my career, you know, in a sense, you get further and further and further away from the action because you, you, you know, my, my main goal now is to enable, you know, a small group of people who enable a slightly larger group, who enable a larger group, who enable a larger group. But if anything through that thread, that new things can be created or existing things can be improved. And, you know, the focus of our work at Farm Radio is always around Ultimately, we're trying to make sure that radio programming, so opportunities for people to access information and to communicate, that those the quality of them improves. And again, the quality to me, the fundamental definition of the quality is that the programs do what they set out to do. Um, and I'll just you know share one example because 
Uh, it's not my legacy, but I've been reflecting on the legacy of an old friend of mine who just died um, about a month ago. Her name is Martha Marie Kleinhans, and she was fundamental in securing the license for that radio station in Montreal, CKUTFM, which is now a very famous and well-established station that has, you know, dozens and dozens of programs, and it's been on air for, you know, I don't know, 30 years or more, 35 years, like a long time. But the work that she did back in 1985 and 1986 was an important part of getting that station on the air. And that station has positively impacted the lives of tens of thousands of people and hundreds and thousands of people who've worked at the station and been a part of the programming. But everybody who's ever listened to anything that that station did, and there's a lot of innovations and a lot of really remarkable things in many spaces that all go back to the fact that there were people who made that possible. And you know, so if anything, I, I put out a social media post because when I was in Montreal, I was reflecting on all of this. And just to say to even people that I know, if you love that radio station, just say a little thank you to Martha Marie Kleinhans, because the reason that station is there is partly because of her. So if I've ever had anything to do with making those spaces available, especially if they've gone on for any period of time, that's what would make me you know, the most happy. And that that's what really drives me is to, to think that there's some kind of programming that was important to people on some level. Oh, that's brilliant. That's really great. I'm sorry to hear about your friend passing. Um, and it, and it's when these, when, when friends we know pass, it's when we look at how they contributed to society, our life. And yeah. it makes us, it's endearing, you know, because sometimes we don't think about that. We think we're going to live forever, <laughs> you know, yeah. but when it happens, and you just take a pause and say, well, if that person hadn't done this, what would have happened? You know, how yeah, would that that's right. things be remaining yeah. the same, right? And sometimes we forget those things ourselves. Like, I'm sure that, you know, Martha was probably not thinking very much about that that's what she'd done. But I was thinking about it and I really recognized and wanted just to remind people that she made that important contribution and that really changed things for for a whole lot of people in a good way. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's really, really great. And that's why I like the question of legacy, because it, it does open up a space for someone to think about our impact on, on the world and on society. I think that we often don't look at our own impact and how we impact. We, you know, when we, when we think of impact, we think of negative impacts. Like when right, we're thinking right. of climate, we think, you know, we think of impact on climate, we think of all the negative things. But what about the innovations? What about all the great stuff that we do for each other as a society, as human beings, you know, opening up safe spaces for people so they can be authentic and they can be who they are meant to be. Yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, quite quite good that we finally got together. I know I had some internet issues, Ian, and and uh, with the Starlink, I guess we can thank Leon Musk for it. Yeah, yep. <laughs> we're able to communicate without disruption. Um, you might be interested 
in the uh, next show that I'm going to be uh, uploading. I haven't interviewed it yet, but I'm going to be interviewing this performer who's a drag queen in Hawaii. Great. And I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Well, I've really enjoyed the podcasts that I've heard. And I heard the one, I, I'm not very good with names, but but the one with the guy from Australia. Um, and it was fascinating. Um, you know, it really was so interesting, the conversation that you had with him. Yeah. Um, I learned a lot. And, and there were, you know, uh, many others, too, that I, I really enjoyed very much. So I will listen for interest to that one. And as a radio guy, I don't need the visuals. That You know, as they say, radio is a visual medium because it's all about your imagination. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And the, and I mean, we get energetically, we we feel by the voices we hear and how people speak about whatever it is they're involved in, right? It's, it's through our tonation and our excitement and our passion that we talk about these things that come across through radio really well. Yeah, we don't absolutely. Need to have the visual. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it was McLuhan, I think, who said that, you know, radio is a hot medium, whereas television is actually a a cool medium in the sense that everything is done for you. So you don't have to do as much or you don't have the opportunity to do as much. Whereas with radio, it really activates you, you know. Yeah, yeah. it lights up your brain. And that's what. Yes, exactly. 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 (laughs) Yeah. Well, Ian, it was really, really lovely talking to you and having this conversation. I know you live in the same city as I do. One of these days we'll have to meet in person. <laughs> That's right. Well, I'll come out and see you. Where, where I was thinking about you the other day because are you in Dun, Dun, Dun Robin? Robin? Yes. Dun Robin. Because, yeah. I, you know, every spring probably I think about you because they talk about Dun Robin on the radio and that there might be flooding. And I think, oh, I hope Angelina you <laughs> know, will be okay during the flooding. Yeah. How, how is it out there? It's actually good. Our house is quite high up um, okay, above good. the river. Right, so we're good. not on, we're about 40 feet above the river. So okay, we, we don't great. experience the flooding. Okay. And it's, um, the river is still, it's a little bit high right now, like you can yeah. see, um, yeah. but there's no danger to us. Okay, but I'd love for you to come out and uh, That would be nice, but we'll organize that. I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, I'd love yeah. that. <laughs> okay, well, we'll All be right. in touch. Thank you very much for this opportunity. It was really nice to talk to you. All right, Ian, thank you so much for joining me. Okay. Bye-bye.